This is Inside Work. My name is Robert. Think about your social circle, the people that you choose to spend the most time with, the people that you're closest to. A lot of times we tend to associate with and gravitate towards people who have a worldview that is similar to our own. And I'm not saying that this is universally true, but it is a tendency that many of us have. And if we think about social media, we're all familiar with the echo chamber effect that tends to happen when like-minded people create a self-reinforcing shared narrative and view of the world. So why am I bringing all of this up? Well, if you think about it, the workplace is one of those spaces where we're likely to encounter people who have different points of view than our own. People that come from all different walks of life And in the case of a global company, people that come from all over the world, from completely different cultural contexts as well. So what I wanted to talk about today is how we can see each other and engage with each other in the workplace when we don't agree with each other. I don't listen with the intent of answering back. I'm listening with the intent of understanding, and I think that makes a difference. You won't be listening in order to judge. You will just be listening because you're genuinely interested. And I think that makes a huge difference. Whenever you try to discuss a topic, especially a hit a topic with someone, um, the first step is lose your ego. I mean, you have to ask yourself, are you trying to prove yourself right? or? you are actually believing in what you say. And those, that's a very fine line a lot of times. And I think, you know, because of how our society is so obsessed with our ego and our face, um, we merge the two together. You know, I like what Bill McDermott says, trust is earned in drops and lost in buckets, right? And uh, in order to build that trust and the civility within the workplace, we have to be good listeners. And we have to be curious. I'm about 20 years into my career, and I've spent most of that time working for American software companies, tech companies. And one of the things that I've implicitly understood and that I think most people have implicitly understood in the workplace is that there are some taboo topics that we don't bring up. Politics, religion, to name a couple of those, I think we've intrinsically understood that we don't talk about those things in the workplace. But that's changing. And I think that's been that's been changing for a while. But in the past couple of years, recent events have made that even more true. So in a world where employers are increasingly encouraging employees to bring more of their whole selves to work, it's inevitable that we're going to run into some of these controversial discussions in the workplace. And that's a fact of life here at ServiceNow as well. And even recently, there was a discussion on a company message board that became heated. And as a result of that, I ended up talking to some people and exploring this theme uh, for this podcast episode, just based on what was happening in real life. And uh, that's that's what I'm going to bring you into right now. I'm going to drop you into the discussion with Nick and Amy. And we're going to start by talking about a really fascinating colleague that I got to know over in Israel. So I had a fascinating conversation with Shaul, Nick, 
Um, did you learn any of his story and your brief interaction with him? No. Well, buckle up, buddy, because this is, mm-hmm. it's, I, I think it's pretty amazing. Um, so I think what we'll do is this. The very first thing I'm going to play for you is I, I just asked Shaw who he was. Say your, say your first name for me. Uh, Shaul, which is uh, the Hebrew version of Saul, S-A-U-L. Who are you? Where are you from? Tell me the story of Shaul. <laughs> I was born in South Africa um, and grew up, in, grew up in Johannesburg. And we were, uh, we were a uniquely activist family, actually. I think we, we were very active in the anti-apartheid struggle which expressed itself in many ways. My mother particularly, uh, she should be well and strong. She's turning 80 in a couple of days' time. Um, and she was uh, she worked for a, an organization called the Black Sash, which was a free advice office for uh, for people who were being, you know, who, who were being evicted from their homes unjustly. And there, I mean, there was, you can imagine in, in apartheid South Africa what kind of injustices were going on. And my mother was uh, was always there as, uh, you know, she she went and donated her time volunteering and uh, giving legal advice and uh, helping out people who, who needed, who really needed the help, you know, when they were fired without compensation, things like that. Um, or, or And there were occasions when she actually went and literally lay down in front of bulldozers. Um, she was arrested once or twice in the course of her uh, in the course of her activity, and uh, that like I went to school with bragging rights. <laughs> I was like, yeah, my mum got arrested yesterday. <laughs> it was, uh, I was sort of particularly proud of that, um, and um, and we also um, is sort of on the um, on the darker side of things. We occasionally acted as a safe house for people who were on the run from the security police. So, um, so you know, when when the if the you know the security police in South Africa were bad, very bad, and people would disappear and not be seen again. And uh, so, when we heard, you know, when people said they're they're on the run, when they got they got a tip off that the security police had their number up, um, they would come and stay over at us for a for a night or two before we could find another place for them to move on to, usually out of the country. That was kind of uh, a formative experience in my youth. Was uh, you know seeing uh, seeing injustice and uh, and like being active. It's interesting. I I know him a little, um, and we've chatted a little bit, but n- no idea in the brief interaction that we had on what might be the formative experience of his life in terms of how he looks at the world. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you listen to his story, then all of a sudden the things that he and I have talked about just take a much richer shape. Uh, I, I mean, it's a particularly powerful example of that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, his, his story, there's, there's nothing pedestrian about his story. Not that mm. I'm diminishing anyone's story, but I'm just saying it's one that really grabs you. And yeah, as you said, Nick, when we understand someone's where they're coming from, we see things in a different light. Mm-hmm. I have this big takeaway this year. I think, I wonder if I mentioned this before to you guys, but uh, from one of our unconscious bias trainings and 
it was that, you know, people obviously make inherent assumptions and kind of shortcut who you might be based on the little they might know about you. And, um, and the proposal was, how can you start those relationships or enriching ones that you have with a conversation around, you know, what do people assume about you? And then what would you want them to know? And it strikes me as one of those conversations where I wonder if he would want people to know that I would kind of assume so, but like you said, what a formative experience that shaped who he is and how, and what his worldview might be. But you know, what's sad, what's sad is that, um, I won't go as far as to say that I don't think we, meaning like a collective we, not the three of us, I don't think it's that we don't have interest anymore in those kinds of stories. I think it's that we we don't, it doesn't even occur to us to like seek it out, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, you just like are encouraged uh, almost because of the pace that society moves now to say, oh, this person thinks that thing, so I'm going to put them in a box and not care about learning how or why they thought about that issue, that one issue, that one way. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just a lot to us. We're all, we're all complex individuals. I had a, a really great time talking to Shaul just because I think we both have eccentric interests and tastes. And we talked about everything from science fiction to um, brain chemistry, and it was just all over the map. So anyway, but he, for example, writes science fiction. <laughs> He's, he has a book. It's out there on Amazon. I mean, it's just very interesting person. Mm-hmm. But um, I might we might share uh, some of the backstory in a moment of of how I got connected with Shaul. You know, we have I guess sixteen thousand colleagues at this point. Fact check. By the time we finish editing the episode, the right number is about seventeen thousand. I can't keep up. Somewhere around that, so I don't actually know everyone, and uh, they don't all know me. But uh, I got connected to Shaul for a particular reason. But before we get to that, I I wanted to play this for you because after hearing some of his story and talking about you know science fiction and brain chemistry and everything else, uh, I I asked him about how it is that we in the workplace can engage with each other when we have very divergent points of view and, you know, try to see each other. So let me play this for you. You know, when, when, it, when it comes to any, any issue, ultimately, I mean, you can, have, you can have productive discussions, you can have arguments, as long as you're kind of respecting each other. And ultimately, policymakers are going to have to make a decision. And invariably, some of, the, you know, some of those decisions are going to upset some people. Um, but it has to be managed in a way that the people who aren't going to agree with your decision must at least feel that you've respected them enough by understanding their point of view and that you can just do simply by saying back, okay, let's say um, you're going to, you, you've got this um, uh, contractor mandate with the vaccinations and whatever, and, uh, and, you can, and you can say, look, we've had a very difficult decision to make. Uh, you know, we've got people in the company who feel that we really should be looking out for the health of our employees and, and, uh, and complying as much as possible with what the government is saying. And you've got other people who, you know, very justifiably are saying, my health is my decision. I don't want you to force me to stick anything in my body that uh, that I don't want to have. And uh, you know, by saying, you know, take a, you know, take the vaccine or we'll fire you, um, is a is a violation of my of my personal right to decide. And and then say, 
but you know we've heard the considerations on both sides and you know because of such and such considerations we we have to ha- make a decision and we have decided to to go this way and i know this that that a lot of people are going to be unhappy about this we can suggest ways that we can work around this and i think people are, can be understanding that when you have to make a decision somebody's going to be upset but at least you have to let people know that you have respected them um and that's one of the things that again i see uh, you know as an outsider i'm not an american so as a, a non-American and looking looking in and seeing how incredibly polarized um, both the media and the political debate is, uh, it's you know it's it's very troubling because you've basically got a lot of people just sort of yelling at each other and not really trying to understand. Um, you know this is the sort of sort of thing that unfortunately. Um, the social media encourages the um, the mainstream media also encourages. In fact, the, the 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 profit model of the mainstream media is to make you angry and upset. Um, I mean, you get a massive dopamine hit. This is like chemically true. You get a massive dopamine hit from righteous indignation. So the so the media feeds you righteous indignation, uh, and even with completely fake news. I'm saying both sides. Both sides are doing it, and uh, it's that's unfortunately the thing is that the, the media, the media profit model, they're trying to get clicks, and uh, and advertising and whatever else it is that uh, you know that that feeds their that feeds their model. We covered a lot of ground there with with Shaul, and so there was there was a lot there for us to reflect on. So it's hard to do anything but agree with the fact that. And, you know, I am an American and I do live in the United States. And Shaul's assessment of our <laughs> civic environment is 100% accurate. It's a total cluster. Um, there's no one person or one side that's to blame for that. Um, I, I will say that the idea of, of acknowledging that there is always somebody or some group of people on the other side of whatever topic that 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 recognition seems to have like evaporated um and you know like everybody rests comfortably you know thinking that they live in um uh, in a world that exists exactly as they see it with very limited appetite to hear other things and that to me uh, i don't know how you get out of that it's like a it's like a black hole like i don't know how you get out of that yeah you know what's interesting that just occurred to me though is obviously media, whether you're watching TV or consuming it on a social platform, uh, you know, choosing what media source you go to, what have you, you know, does tend to start to both polarize and segment people into certain categories, and then they can get in that proverbial bubble of hearing more of what they believe or that being reinforced versus hearing from across the the perspectives, right across the divide. And work is one of those places where it brings people together, regardless of a stance. And it might be one of the few places people are still brought together because, you know, maybe some assumptions here, but social, you know, circles that you might run in, people you choose to spend time with, what have you. I mean, we have a relatively diverse set of friends, but we tend to, you know, if we know we have strongly different opinions on things, we kind of tactfully avoid some of those topics a lot of the times, right? So it, work may actually bring to the forefront some of these issues in a, in a way that we are walking away from in other forums. Yeah, it's true. I remember um, 
a woman that I worked for years ago used to say that the great thing about working at NASA in the, you know, in the sixties is that you could go up to any person who worked anywhere in the, in the agency and they would say, we're going to put someone on the moon. We're going to put a man on the moon. Like that mm -hmm. was their unifying focus. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not that simple in a, in a, you know, in a business and in, in other workplaces, there is still some semblance of unity, right? We exist to, to do whatever it is the organization does. And you're right, mm -hmm. that, that is not easy to find elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So we, we, went to, we went to dinner last night. There were a few of us that were in the Santa Clara office. And one of, the, one of the people that I was out to dinner with who I've spoken to on the phone and over Zoom a few times, but I just met yesterday for the first time. His name is Klaus Henning. He lives outside of Heidelberg, Germany. And, you know, we were just, we were having a chat and I had recently traveled to Germany and we were talking a little bit about that and some of the food that I really liked eating while I was there. And I knew that his father was a diplomat and that he was, you know, raised in many different places. But he told me there was a certain point when he was nearing high school, I think, he had lived in so many different countries, Japan and the Philippines and all over Asia primarily. And he said, I, I don't really know my own culture. And so he went to a, uh, a boarding school in Germany, but it was a Jesuit school. And I, I made a recording of him while we were in the bar last night, but it was, it was quite loud. And so I, I don't know if we'll be able to play that. But what he was saying was it was a very critical part of his formation because the, the values of the Jesuits when it comes to critical thinking and the way that they educate. So the Jesuits are, are the most critical order that you have from all the orders. And critical in terms of? Critical in terms of critical reasoning. They, they always teach you, listen to one opinion, listen to a second opinion, listen to a third opinion, and then make your own opinion. Don't ever blindly listen to or follow any opinion that you see out there or that you hear out there. You gotta understand the, the reasoning and you gotta make your own opinion for everything in life. So that was my biggest take from that entire You know, that's, that's something that as I was talking to people for this episode was a theme that I heard from others as well. And uh, I think what I would like to play next is from Mira, who's uh, a colleague here in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. And yeah, let's, let's hear from her. I was a political science major in college and I was also a finance major. And so that was really interesting because I felt like I, I was really, you know, in having two different worlds. Um, I have a little, have more friends, honestly, in, on the political science side who are now working at nonprofits, working in the government, going to law school, having very different career tracks. And so I think that one thing that I am always thinking about as I am going about my daily life and in my career is I, I'm getting the perspectives of, of these other people who are working in activist organizations or, or in these other parts. So that's something that's always been really important to me is being able to get multiple perspectives um, and mm -hmm. being able to, um, being able to like reach beyond my own experience. Um, I think, I think technology has made it really easy for us to withdraw and, you know, choose what information we, we engage with rather than just sort of encountering many different things and, 
and understanding and understanding there's pros and cons to many different things. So, so I'm just going to stop there and yeah, I'd love to hear your reflection and your own experience in, in cultivating other points of view beyond the one that's maybe most innate to you. I love it. I don't know about you, Amy. I, I actually, I'm bored if somebody isn't telling me that they disagree. Um, <laughs> because frankly, it's like, you know, maybe it's just my work, but I find that knowing what the, contr the, the contrarian argument is to whatever I think in a, in a, in a worst case just strengthens my ability to argue from my own point of view in a, in a best case, it, you know, evolves my thinking. So I guess I, I ask for it. I don't mm -hmm. know. Do you, mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel like people ask for it? I, I find myself having to ask for it regularly. I, you know, I think a lot of what I have to do is facilitate getting those opinions out and heard, knowing that they exist, but knowing that people might be reticent to go against the grain or feel uncomfortable with that. And um, one of the forums I have to do that frequently in is a design review. And we have different types of design reviews, but you know, we'll review a product. We've got various stakeholders and leadership and ICs and a whole mix of people there looking at something. And, um, you know, there's frequently those that are very comfortable speaking up with their opinion, and that could be for or against whatever is being proposed with other ideas or questions or analyses. And then there's generally an even larger contingency of people that hold back their opinions because they're not sure if their opinion is right or will be believed in or supported or if they are even in a position to be able to chime in, right? And so I frequently feel like I'm the one that has to make it okay and, and even call on people to, to solicit those opinions and get that diversity of thought going in the room and, and let folks know that's okay and that's what's expected. Um, and then part of what I have to weigh too is sometimes I'll get feedback like, hey, I'm an introvert. I don't want to have to speak up, you know? And so I also have to balance like I might be causing someone discomfort. They may not want to be called on, but I guess I err on the side of um, I'd rather make them uncomfortable and hear their opinion. And and that's just kind of how it is. And that that's the way I roll. Yeah. Yeah. You, you said you said the word uncomfortable in there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it reminded me, I, I mentioned the the podcast, the it's actually an NPR, NPR radio show, but also a podcast called On Being. And one that I find very profound and just in the way that it explores uh, what it is to be human. And there's a lot of philosophy and there's a lot of reflection. It just appeals to who I am, I think, in a lot of ways. And there's an episode that was done, I believe, in 2018 around civility. And they also explore the, the fraught meaning that that word can take on um, in the sense that, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll I'll curb that thought because I think something I'm going to play for you has me saying those same words. So I won't make you listen to me say that twice, but I do want to say this. And it's, it's a quote from that episode and she says, creating spaces and experiences of robust, adventurous civility is actually very strategically effective because what you're doing is you're creating a space in which it's reasonable to ask people, smart people, complicated people who've been through complicated things to let themselves get uncomfortable mm -hmm. in the presence of a stranger. Can you just mm. text me that so I can say, that's a really smart observation. I'd like credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this, by the way? 
Her her name is Krista Tippett, T-I-P-P-E-T-T. And she she runs a media company and she hosts a podcast called On Being. And um, you know, you know what, while I'm at it, let me just read you another beautiful quote, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna move to something else. And so she says, I think of a good conversation as an adventure. You create a generous and trustworthy space for it and prepare hospitality for it so the other person will feel so welcome and understood that they will put words around something they have never put words around quite that way before. They will give voice to something they didn't know they knew, and you will be a witness to thinking, revelation, in real time. This is one reason that radio slash podcasting is such a magical medium. Everyone who listens joins that room, becomes a witness the moment they push play. They're also there for the revelation. It's a form of time travel. And if the conversation is edifying, we all sync up in some mysterious way across time and space and grow a little together. So, um, I mean, they're, they're beautiful words about the, the, the potential of, of conversation between people and this medium. Hmm. I loved how she talked about the hospitality of that environment that you have to create because what you talked about previously, which was, you know, being uncomfortable in the presence of a stranger, that's a pretty tough thing to do, right? Someone you haven't met, I'm much more comfortable being uncomfortable with people that I feel close to, right? That I know I can be vulnerable with, that I have trust with. And so to to establish a, a place or an environment where a stranger can feel uncomfortable and that level of vulnerability does take a real art of creating hospitality, warmth, trust in a very fast way, right? And how can you disarm people to know that they can say whatever and they'll still be okay? You know, that, that's a talent. <laughs> that's, so, that's so interesting to me. That I feel much more comfortable <laughs> being vulnerable and disagreeable or, or, you know, in front of a stranger. Mm. I, I, can, I can go from zero to 60 in the vulnerability, you know, scale in front of a complete stranger, it takes me much longer in front of people that I know. I don't know why mm-hmm. that is, but it's totally mm-hmm. over opposite of what you said. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can understand that in the sense of like public speaking, I'd rather do that in front of a room of people I don't know because who cares, right? Like if I mess up, I don't care. I don't know these people. I care more about the impression I make on people I care about and know well. Um, but that being said, for me to be vulnerable and say something that's potentially uncomfortable, I feel safer doing that if I really know the people I'm sharing that with wouldn't hold it against me in some way. It wouldn't, you know, they would still think I'm a good person, even if I said something wrong or misspoke or my idea might change at some point. The word uncomfortable makes me think of Emmanuel Acho because he's very good at branding and all the people who helped him uh, conceive of uncomfortable conversations with a black man. Maybe he he did it all by himself, but I'm imagining he had a team. We actually heard from him. He he came and spoke to us at our company. And it just occurs to me that in that uncomfortable space, that's that's where change happens. And I don't mean we can quickly change someone's mind so that they agree with us, but I just mean it creates the, the, the possibility um, and and it, it creates you know that that hospitality you pointed out that that word Amy when I watched the way that he 
when he sat down with Matthew McConaughey, which was the first one I saw of his, and I had, you know, when I first heard of him, I think on YouTube, hospitality, it was one of those things. He was opening up the space, right? And he, he was creating a permission for someone to ask questions that maybe they have felt they can never ask before because they were too risky. Uh, and I was actually talking to one of our board members who I met last year after I spoke on an all company meeting about my experiences being black, working in tech. And uh, he, he told me, you know, you, you helped create a space in the conversation between us where I could ask questions to try to understand, to, to try to understand you, Robert, and your perspective and experience that being a white male, I didn't feel like I could ask those questions without either taking a risk I wasn't willing to take or hurting someone's feelings or offending them in a way that I didn't want to do. And so there's definitely a, a power in being able to enter into that uncomfortable space. I mean, look, uh, to me, and I think maybe, Amy, this goes to a little bit of what I was saying, and it's tied, Robert, to your story. I kind of view uncomfortable as credibility building. So I'm in a rush to get there because I want people to see that it's real and that, you know, it's me. They're my words. They're my thoughts. And if I show vulnerability or imperfection or any you know, sort of an openness to the fact that I may be wrong, then I feel like people are more willing quickly to sort of, you know, open up and reciprocate that. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, I don't, completely I don't agree. Do, I don't think we do enough of that. I feel like it's always a rush to be perfect. Yes. Yeah. I, that was a formative moment in my career. I think I'd, I'd gone many, many years trying to appear like I had a, a handle on everything and everything was perfect. And then, uh, uh, you know, I went through a divorce at a certain point in my career, and that's something I couldn't conceal from my colleagues, right? They knew what I was going through. I had to share about that. And it felt like a whole part of my life suddenly, you know, blew up. And I felt humiliated in that I felt like, well, now they know I don't have a handle on that part of my life, right? Even though that wasn't, that was one way to look at it at the time. I don't look at it that way anymore. But, uh, you know, I had to be very vulnerable and, and transparent about all of that. And it completely changed how I lead teams now and the relationships I have with colleagues where I've, re I've realized like trying to appear like everything's perfect and you've got a handle on everything is not actually an effective leadership style. Um, and showing and being vulnerable about, hey, here's what I'm challenged with. Here, here's the things that I'm struggling with. Here's what's going on that I'm trying to balance and maybe not, you know, doing a great job of. Everyone feels much more comfortable opening up about what's going on in their lives. Um, and, and you have to, I think, be forthcoming with that. And you have to make sure you set the tone of, I'll be like an open book with you. And, and you can feel comfortable doing that with me if you choose to. And, and you know, I have a formative relationship in my life, too. And, and Robert, you reminded me of this when you talked about the uncomfortable conversations. I had a manager two jobs ago. Um, who's now one of my best friends in the universe. And we talk every week. We, we make a, an appointment to talk so we don't ever not talk. And, um, and he's a black executive who works in technology, also in design. And I grew so close to him because he was always so open. He's like, you can ask me anything. 
don't worry about hurting my feelings. You know, I'm an open book. You know, I'll tell you anything and you can ask me anything. And it just established a relationship where I didn't have to worry about saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong questions. We could just put it out all on the table and and learn from each other. And there was nothing that was um, ever, you know, taboo from those conversations. And it's created such a rich relationship, but also helped me understand his perspective and experiences at such a, a deep level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have very few relationships like that, to be honest, where anything's on the table and you can go that deep. Yes. Mm-hmm. And of course, I know it's just apparent in what you're saying, this was something that was built over a long period of time. Yes. <clears throat> yes. But one of the things that attracted me to wanting to work to him with him was, I think our very first conversation started out that way. He was open. He was humble. He shared, hey, I want to bring you to this team, but here are the things that I'm challenged with. Here's you know, how I'm growing. Right. Uh, you know, and I need, it was right? an invitation. He's like, I need your help too. Like, can you come help me? And it wasn't just a, you know, a, a closed off conversation. It was a very open and transparent conversation. It sounds like nothing like what a recruitment usually sounds like. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't, I don't hear in your retelling of the story that you were particularly compelled with the position description or the, uh, the KPIs or the, you know, the wealth creation opportunity. It sounds like you were compelled by stylistically and culturally what he was signaling to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was talking to a number of great companies at that time, some much more well-known and prestigious and, you know, bigger businesses and all of that. And the number one reason I went to that job is I, I'm going to learn from this person. I want to work with this person and learn with this person and the other thing he would always say is we're a team, you know, it's not about me managing you or anything like that. Like we're a team, we're in this together. And I was like, wow, I've never had a manager or a leader talk to me in that way. You know, like we're in this together. Well, this is really great, um, rich conversation today. And, uh, we have 11 minutes. I actually and- have five. Sorry. I have. I Damn it, Nick. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, I, I really, really appreciate the conversation today. Yeah, let's play this. Let's play this other piece from Mira. I think that it is a really tough topic, and I think that different companies have approached it differently. On one hand, there's companies that have banned political discourse, for example, and there's others that want to encourage all points of view, even if some points of view might be traumatizing or triggering for others. So I think. There's a range of different responses. I think of it more as like the humanist and personal perspective, which is that you can disagree with someone on a point, but you likely don't have any, like you, pro- you probably don't have major conflict with them as a human. Um, and I think that it's important to disaggregate what their perspective is on a particular topic with who they are as a person. There's a tendency that we judge each other based on our identity. and in like the modern workplace and in the modern society that goes both ways, right? On one hand, you feel like you have to, you have to make Facebook posts and really support the people in your community and and align very strongly on your identity. And on the other hand, you know, you judge people in ways that are not necessarily true or, you know, could be harmful. And I think that there's a way that we can 
you know, humans are really smart. We can have a really nuanced perspective on who another person is. I can say that I disagree with you on something and still really like you and want to have lunch with you. And I think that is something that's kind of lost, um, is kind of lost on us when we are working from home, when we are burnt out, when, you know, we feel tired by all of these things, it's harder for us to like get to that level of nuance. And I think that's why, you know, you see, you see, you see just a lot of really contentious, uh, interactions online, um, that you may not actually see in person. So I think that's that's just something that I've observed and something that I take into account when I'm working because there's there's times where you know my perspective on the corporate strategy team isn't aligned with someone's someone else's perspective, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a great relationship outside of that one thing that we're talking about. So that's actually a great way to bring this full circle because I, I've said probably three times during our recording today. I was going to talk about how it was that I got connected with Shaul in the first place. And then we just kept finding these great things to talk about. Um, Nick, can you, can you tell folks a little bit about that? In the immediate aftermath of all the things that had been happening, uh, including courtroom verdicts and different sort of policy and political issues, there had been a uh, post on one of the company's internal pages and there was a hot debate over whether or not the post itself intending to help soothe one of those situations was in fact having the opposite effect was it was it triggering a different kind of debate and using you know terminology that was insinuating something that wasn't actually the case and you know those types of situations beg for what we've been talking about here which is to go in and figure out why do people feel one way or the other. And Shaul was one of the people who was very vocal about what he felt. And he, to his immense credit, took the invitation to talk about what he was feeling and uh, had the, uh, you know, I think, uh, high courtesy to talk to the person who authored the original post with which he strongly disagreed. And just in watching the whole situation play out, it was an obvious example of uh, what things can be like inside work if people see and hear each other better. So that's how he made it to Robert. Yeah. Would you like um, when I got the title of the podcast in my actual answer? Oh, I was asleep at the wheel. I didn't even, wow. I can't <laughs> wait to listen to that. Sorry well to done. miss a big moment. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so... This was great. And, you know, hey, everybody, it's me coming in after the fact. We were running short on time, but I wanted to cut away to share a couple more things with you that I did not get to share with Nick and Amy. First up is Alexandra. We met her in episode two, but I think I forgot to say her name when I was introducing her clip in that episode. She's originally from Strasbourg, France, and she lives in Dublin now, and she's a very wise person. Check this out. Even in my family, we don't have the same opinion like in many families. But I think what they told me, what they taught me is that it's not the difference that you have with like an opinion with other people. It's the common ground that you have. And there's always common ground somewhere. And when you find that, it gets way easier than to share and to, I would say, rehumanize the other person. Because I think that's the issue we have when we encounter someone that doesn't think like we do is that we tend to put that person in a specific 
category and be like, yes, so you're one of those people. And we deny them human traits and characteristics, basically. So finding common grounds with them just helps you realize that, yes, something happened that made that person think a different way. And maybe what happened to them is actually valid. I know that myself being part of a minority, I've been dehumanized as well for many reasons. So I I know how that, that won't bring anything good in anyone. How can I make sure that when I talk to someone, I see them for who they are and not what I think they are because of what they're thinking, basically. It's yeah. not always easy. It requires a lot of patience. I don't always have the patience, to be honest, as well. Um, uh, and that's, I think that's the key, just reminding yourself that you are also one of those humans and you're trying your best every day and sometimes you can't, sometimes you can. That is such an important message. Thank you, Alexandra. I feel like I need to hear that at the start of every day to make sure that I'm approaching people in the right way. And to wrap things up, we're going to go to Dave. He's a colleague that lives out in Michigan. And every time I talk to him, he gives me something to reflect on. A, a big thing for for me that I have realized in, in my role, um, one, I think I tend to see more of these conversations around politics and religion and and uh, you know vac- vaccinations come up probably more than more than ever. Um, you know the uh, social injustice and it's just been it's been a, a, a crazy couple years. And uh, what I've learned is that um, it's okay for me to not voice my opinion sometimes and just be a listener. Um, and I think a lot of people just want to be heard um, and 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 know that the other person on the other side of the you know the camera the zoom is is just taking it in. I think a lot of people feel better about that. I have some people on my team that I know you know we've had some some tough conversations and um, I I've, for a while I felt like I had to try to help them figure it out but reality is is sometimes it's it's them just wanting to be heard especially now when we're not able to get together and 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 be face to face um i think sometimes it's people need that outlet and i view myself as just a channel to listen to people and and let them know that they're being heard and respected Mm, yeah i think that's a deep need Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think in a leadership role we oftentimes we feel like oh we got to have an answer right we gotta, we gotta help these, these, these individuals. And the reality is, is they might not be looking for help. And we might assume that they are because maybe we have different points of views on things. Right on, Dave. Great message to everyone and especially to leaders. So this is definitely our longest episode ever, but there was too much good stuff that I wanted to share with you. We better go back to the conversation with Nick and Amy and wrap things up. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like I could keep going on this topic. Yeah, I don't think we're I don't think we're done with this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. We could probably keep going for a while, so maybe we'll have to come back to mm-hmm. this one someday. Yeah. For right now, we'll hit the pause button. I'll let y'all go, and uh, yeah, have a great day. Thanks, guys. Okay, All see right. you soon. Congrats. All right. Inside Work is brought to you by ServiceNow, and is hosted by Nick, Amy, and me, Robert. Our audio engineer is Cameron. And if you're still here, 
Thank you for sticking around. I hope you found the conversation meaningful. And I want to say a huge thank you to my colleagues who contributed to today's episode. Alexandra, Vanessa, Dave, Shaul, Klaus Henning, and Mira. Thank you all for weighing in on a difficult topic and giving us a lot to think about. We'll be back again soon with more conversations about being human at work.